low-hanging fruit is gone, so to speak, right? So um, we're only left with hard targets, basically. So the way that we need to tackle a lot of these harder targets for, for today's antibody discovery platforms uh, is with either custom assays or some of these harder um, functional assays or or characteristics that we need to tease out that wouldn't have been possible five or 10 years ago to do in a high throughput manner to actually find, like you said, that needle in the haystack. My name is Kashif, and this is BioRadio, a group of biologists turned bioinformaticians bring you into the world of research and development informatics by interviewing the people responsible for implementing systems and technologies to a unique and diverse set of use cases. Recently, antibody treatments and antibody testing related to COVID-19 in particular have garnered media attention. But monoclonal antibodies are nothing new. In fact, the first monoclonal antibody was approved by the US FDA more than three decades ago. Antibody engineering has dramatically evolved over the years, but the informatics have advanced at a much slower pace. There are significant challenges from concept to IND in managing, tracking, and integrating multiple assay and antibody data across several teams and locations, all while gaining insights and maintaining compliance. How can a holistic informatics strategy support gaining clearer insights into the scientific operations while making smarter decisions about their campaigns and ultimately bringing therapeutics to the clinic faster? To talk about this, today we're here with Colby Sauters. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi everybody, uh, I'm Colby Sauters, uh, CSO of Abvaris Antibody and I've been in the antibody field for about 10 years now. Just for background, could you tell us a little bit about your relation with informatics in particular? Yeah, absolutely. So that's become a main issue for us recently. Um, As you mentioned uh, in in the introduction, early on in the antibody discovery field, you weren't dealing with quite as much multi-dimensional data. So in terms of antibody discovery campaigns, you would be doing hybridoma discovery, you'd have perhaps hundreds, maybe a thousand hits if you were in good shape, and you'd be pulling data like ELISA or flow cytometry data. Now we're pairing that with things like affinity and blocking assays and um, binning data. And so there's these large multi-dimensional data sets that now we have to also correlate to sequences and now you know not just the sequences of these hits but now repertoire sequences and how the data overlays with all of this and so it's quite challenging to integrate all of it together and make sense of everything um, it's easy to make sense of the few hundred that you care about the most but usually there's some very interesting candidates within the other thousands uh, of sequences that you can mine so being able to make sense of all that data and bring it together is our biggest challenge Thinking about the the past, right? So if we look back 10, 20, 30 years ago, uh, from what I understand, uh, there was a very heavy focus on hybridoma discovery for antibodies. You know, looking back, it was it was like a little bit of Sanger sequencing for your for your um, for your regions, right? Uh, looking at the CDR and, and things like that as as your backbone, and then building off of that. Uh, I can imagine a world where there was a lot of manual wet assay, uh, wet lab assays to supplement that to help characterize your data and then a lot of Excel. Is that an accurate picture of, of where the informatics were, let's say 20 years ago, 10 years ago? Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. And I could imagine a lot of manual intervention. They're not, not really systems, nothing really integrated. Uh, and, and so lot, lots of manpower behind that. 
Right. Yep. You're correlating everything um, by hand, so to speak, and uh, making manual curations of the data, no real automated correction, calling out areas that would be in question for data quality. Um, those weren't those weren't automated ways of doing that to to look closer at that data. So spot, that was spot checking your sequences as opposed to running you, it through yeah. some automated, <laughs> automated pipeline. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so, so that was, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Um, uh, next gen sequencing came to the scene, uh, you know, started emerging on the scene mid 2000s, I would say. And yep. over the years has definitely become a lot more accessible. Um, you know, that, that introduces uh, immune repertoire sequencing. Uh, I'm sure that was a game changer. Are there other technologies uh, from like an instrument standpoint that help really push uh, push antibody design uh, or, or discovery further? Yeah, absolutely. So, so like you said, NGS was a big thing, um, being able to look at repertoire sequences, but being able to really look at single cells at that single cell level, that was a big thing too. So uh, that first started with your basic fact sorting. Right. So, so you're using flow cytometry to sort individual cells based off some basic criteria, like the fact that it's a B cell and it has an antigen specificity to, to one or two specific targets that you're looking at that are, that are recombinant proteins. Then we take that a step further and we have some of these microfluidic devices that come on the scene. So now you're able to contain these B cells within compartments. So now you can look at antibody secreting cells um, and measure multiple different components within a single assay um, and get a little more resolution. You get some time-lapse photography on this so you can put a little more data to it. And now there's even better instruments. Um, there's some, some that we use here at Abveris where you can really see multiple assays over time. You can measure four or five, maybe even more different things to the same single B cell. And so you're in these nanoliter chambers and you're able to get all of this data, not just binding specificity, but we're talking you know, functional activity, whether that's on cells or to recombinant protein, if we can block a certain receptor ligand interaction. And so you can get this massive amount of data. And by the way, this all happens in one day. Right. Sure. So before, you know, you're looking at this generating this kind of data over the course of weeks or maybe even months with with previous data. So now not only are you generating this with tens of thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of B cells and you get all of this data, but this is happening in one day. So then what happens if you do that five days in a row or every day of a month? Now you're talking about this massive amount of data. Sure. Again, with all of this multi-dimensional analysis that you have to do to pick out the best clone out of that, nobody wants to have to characterize thousands and thousands of hits. You want to be able to take those thousands and thousands of hits and say, oh yeah, these five, these are my top candidates all from that single day of screening. So nice. that was a huge leap from hybridoma discovery, plate-based assays to now these micro-scale um, microfluidic nanoscale devices that can look at many, many more candidates in much, much more detail than what we could before. Right. So you're talking about an explosion of volume, velocity, variety of data, right? I mean, you're just uh, bombarded, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Certainly <laughs> from an informatics standpoint, how do you approach that? And what has that looked like? How has the informatics space evolved to deal with that, right? Ultimately, you're looking at multi-omic, very multidisciplinary data all around these candidates. Um, how do you deal with the with the data deluge? Yeah, so 
It's, it's an interesting question because I bet you if you talk to 10 people, nine of those 10 people will tell you they, they had to make a custom data analysis pipeline. Um, there's very few commercially available uh, processes that can do all of this. There's several that can do individual components of it, and that's great. And then you piece those together. So you've sure. got one solution for your sequence analysis. You've got another solution for your data deconvolution. And then you've got another solution for presenting it as a you know, bona fide data report or something that's readable. Um, what we would, would really like as a solution are more options for that holistic view, bringing all of these individual pieces of software together into one piece of software. And, and to be honest, there aren't a lot of great solutions out there. There's several that are under development. We've talked to a lot of people about that. And I think there are, are some great ones that are gonna be coming on the market very soon, which is why I say we're kind of at that, that precipice. We're at that, that very beginning edge of this process really taking off and becoming a great way to get even more out of the data that we're already able to generate. And um, so I think we're able to generate the data, like you said, with, with all of these different parameters and with the technology that we have up front for doing the wet lab experiments. But I don't, I agree that, that there are some situations where we're not pulling the most information out of it unless we're integrating these different pieces of software and solutions together. And we're able to do that, but I think it could be easier. Thinking about the, the benefits, right? So going from hybridoma to uh, immune repertoire sequencing, to kind of this multifaceted, you know, you mentioned single cell, uh, cell sorting, that sort of thing. Um, what are the benefits, right? I mean, so certainly a key driver is going to be time to market. I would assume it's harder to find novel antibodies, perhaps like the the, the needle in the haystack type issue. What, what are the other key drivers? Why are you trying to bring so many different types of data together and be able to, you know, move faster? What are the key benefits or drivers there? Yeah, so so the the term everybody uses, and I hate it because it gets used so much, but it's the, the low hanging fruit is gone, so to speak, right? So um, we're only left with hard targets, basically. So the way that we need to tackle a lot of these harder targets for for today's antibody discovery platforms uh, is with either custom assays or some of these harder um, functional assays or or characteristics that we need to tease out that wouldn't have been possible five or 10 years ago to do in a high throughput manner to actually find, like you said, that needle in the haystack. Because not only is it harder because the assays are more difficult to develop in a high throughput fashion, but it's a hard target because you just don't generate enough of immune response or it's a very specific type of, of hit that you need to a very specific epitope um, or binding characteristic. And so it's going to be more rare in your population whether that's from an immune population or from an in vitro library. And so um, we, we need to be able to effectively identify that lead candidate with these advanced assays. And so that's kind of what some of these platforms have enabled us to do as well is pair what previously wasn't necessarily high throughput um, with a solution for that. While, like you said too, at the same time, accelerating the, um, acquisition of that data and um, th thereby being able to screen through more candidates too. Sure. And so two, two follow-up questions. So one is for, uh, for the listeners who don't know or aren't familiar with immune repertoire sequencing, could you describe that a bit? And then the second question is, can, we, can you talk about the scale, right? So in like hybridoma selection, you, I'm 
I'm thinking hundreds or thousands of candidates and, and you're trying to come out with like single digit candidates to then pursue, what is the, what is the top of the funnel when, it's come in, when it comes to immune repertoire sequencing? Yeah, so, so for immune repertoire sequencing, basically what that is, is you're taking every B cell that you possibly could, could isolate from a sample. Maybe that's from blood, maybe that's from a particular tissue type, but you're isolating those B cells and then you're sequencing the heavy chain and the light chain from all of those B cells. And so this leaves you with thousands or tens of thousands of unique sequences, depending on how you characterize clonality in a unique sequence. And so from this, you can get a lot of information uh, about frequency of these particular clones, um, sequence motifs, different characteristics that could tell you something about it. But the caveat being, you don't know anything about these antibodies other than their sequence, right? And their right. frequency. You don't know the f from a functional standpoint. Exactly, exactly. You don't know how they act. So you could go ahead and express all of them, but who really wants to do tens of thousands of, of, of expressions when um, you know 99.99% of those are going to be completely irrelevant? And so you know, the, the way that um, we feel is the most advantageous to use that data set is to combine it with some of these sequences that you see from the single cell or even the hybridoma output where you do have this overlay of the functional data. And so now you can start looking at related sequences. And if you look at one that you determined all the functional readout for it, you know this is a clone of, of high interest. You can overlay that particular sequence and look at clonally related sequences from that full repertoire data set. So now all of a sudden you have a bunch that are essentially um, at different points within the lineage that are all clonally related. So you can start to infer some of the binding properties, some of the functional characteristics of these repertoire sequences using that as your guide. Yeah, sounds like a tremendous amount of data. And, and just for scale, I mean, one of these campaigns, uh, you know, sets of experiments, what is the, the scale of data, right? Is it, I would imagine in the, in like the terabyte range, but you know, how, how large can one of these campaigns be? Yeah. So I don't know that they quite reach the terabyte range, but they're, um, they're a lot of gigabytes, <laughs> um, that, um, that we don't worry too much about. It's mostly, you worry about it a little bit in the upload and download time. But um, today's technology fortunately has solved a lot of that problem. So there is still some computing time involved in it and it could take a day or two uh, for cloud computing to do it. But cloud computing has really helped out a lot with that where you don't have to worry even as much about having these really robust internal servers um, and, and ways of computing that. I remember you know, 15 years ago or so, that's, that's pretty much your only solution, right? Sure. So I remember doing some uh, computer modeling with um, not, not even proteins, but this was, these, these were for chemicals, chemical compounds. So much, much more simple structures. And this was all done on a local server and it would take hours and hours for it just to compute the distances between hydrogen bonds and everything with that. So now to be able to, to plow through all of this data, um, and, and maybe a, a day or two seems like a long time, but to be able to do it at this level, uh, again, gigabytes and gigabytes of data um, is pretty impressive. At a high level, what are, what are the different steps that you go through, right? So, so you get your sequencing data, you may have thousands of clones, thousands of sequences. Uh, what are the intermediary steps going from there 
to your candidates while overlaying all the functional data and and uh, and, and looking at similar similar related clones. Right. Yeah. So so that's usually uh, a custom process that any any two people that you talk to will probably have their own flavor of how they do it. Um, but uh, kind of the in, in the most basic sense, um, what you would do is you would, again, define how close two sequences have to be to consider them clonally related. So maybe you consider that similarity among CDR regions. Maybe you consider that the same VJ or VDJ family. Uh, depends on how strict or loose your criteria are for clonality. But that's usually one of the first steps that you'll take to kind of define these clonal bins, if you will. And so then within that clonal bin, you'll be able to assign the properties based off of the um, one sequence or maybe multiple sequences within that bin that you have data for um, from your wet lab experiments. And then if you've got maybe a hundred other clonally related sequences, now you'll start to overlay those and you can see where particular amino acid changes are located as they compare to that reference sequence that you have all the wet lab data for. And then you can start to use, uh, and again, this is where hopefully more machine learning comes into play, more AI. You'd be able to quickly identify particular point mutations of interest because they'll be in regions that are, you know, quote, hotspots no, or something, right. Something that would be able to perhaps reduce a liability of your sure. original parental clone that you're, that you're looking at. And so being able to, to kind of chug through that data and then say, oh, you know, of these 100 clonally related, these five are very similar. So I suspect they'll have the same binding properties as our original clone, but they reduce this liability. And this is a really interesting mutation that I might want to look at because it might say increase affinity or epitope block it one or two steps to the left or the right. Um, so uh, I think from a high level, that's kind of the few pro basic processes that, that people follow. Got it, perfect. Uh, so you mentioned cloud computing. Uh, I'm sure it's helping with storage, but then also like the compute, the performance side of that not being limited to on-prem servers and, and compute resources. Uh, you also mentioned technological advances, right? Single cell, fast orders, NGS. What are the other technological advances that that have helped, you know, kind of push push antibody discovery further? Yeah, no, that's that's a good one too. Um, so, one thing that that also has come into play that's been higher throughput and more available to the masses, if you will, lately, has been um, crystal structure generation. Um, and structural interactions in the wet lab. The, the other big thing I was alluding to earlier is the in silico analysis, developing software to be able to predict these protein-protein interactions. So predict docking of an antibody with a protein. You know, there's several pretty common um, programs out there right now that most people use, but I see this as, as definitely an emerging area and an emerging field that will become more and more important as these algorithms are pruned, as we can put more data to uh, define the algorithms and the machine learning that we would need to accurately predict. And 
then maybe, you know, take it a step further and, and go from not just, you know, binding angles and, and the way that things are, are interacting, but, you know, predicting affinities, predicting functional outputs, um, predicting multi, um, multimeric interactions. So not just two, two different proteins interacting, but maybe three different proteins interacting. Okay. Um, and this will definitely be important for kind of the next generation of therapies and being, and being able to uh, accelerate again, downstream discovery at a faster pace at higher resolution and finding the even harder candidates to identify within that now imaginary pool, right? So now you have a pool of infinite number of antibodies that you can find if you can just compute them. You talked a bit about kind of where the market is now, right? In, in terms of, um, sequencing and a lot of custom waiting for more commercial products or, or solutions to, to hit the market. Um, you also started talking about the future, right? And, and leveraging AI and machine learning. I'm assuming that's to reduce the wet lab, right? The hands-on time with, with your samples, uh, also probably around reducing the downstream processing, right? Liabilities and, and, and that sort of thing. Are there other drivers that you think will be improved by leveraging things like AI and ML? You touched on the main ones. Um, I think being able to leverage those aspects are the most important, but time could be compressed even more. Um, you know, the, these processes that we're currently using are very fast and there's no doubt about that, but it still takes you a month to go from uh, a sample to having sequence verified um, properties. So if you could have a machine learning uh, algorithm that you trusted, you could go from that in a day. And some of, some of this, you know, what, one of the great things that came, came out of COVID of all the horrible things that came out, one of the great things was was science. We learned a lot about science. One of those was how quickly we could go from knowing the, cause of this disease to what protein on that virus we wanted to target and then targeting that and then developing these therapies that are, that are available. And with the right machine learning that could be cut to a day, right? So, so if we know that we, we are already able to use that and leverage that to identify the target. Now, if you could compute different antibody models correctly to predict binding and binding at the right epitope with the right affinity, um, then we'd be able to engineer that antibody in a computer in a day. Wet lab never goes away. We still need to express that and verify it. it. Right. Yep. Sure. Yep. But that that's possible in a matter of days or weeks at the most. And, um, then with our new delivery methods that we all trust, uh, in MRNA and, and viral delivery, then, right. you know, we are, we are good to go. So we've talked a, a bit about in silico and using machine learning, uh, where do you think high throughput, you know, lab automation, robotics, how does that fit in and does that really push things forward? Yeah, so I, I find that as being a critical thing of the past. It's still here and we still need to, to be able to handle the throughput, um, but hopefully we've reached that plateau. Right. So we needed that to be able to plug through hundreds and thousands of sequences um, prior. If uh, machine learning is able to make it to that next level, 
then at the very beginning, this is going to be of the utmost importance, right? Right now, establishing that this lab automation and ability to handle these samples to get that training set is absolutely critical. But thinking in the future, you know, five, 10 years from now, that need may wane, right? So hopefully we'll be able to accurately predict these um, structures and these antibodies that we would like. And so we don't have to make thousands. Maybe we only have to make a dozen or two dozen now. Sure. And um, so I, I think there's still a lot of interest in instruments where we're able to discern additional data. So where we're able to get that very detailed information about a particular clone or a group of clones and that we're able um, to put high resolution data on it. That's going to be of the utmost importance always. Um, and especially as we start to make some of these better molecules, it gets harder and harder to discern which one is better than the other without sure. that kind of resolution. So I, I see high, high resolution instrumentation as being more important than high throughput instrumentation. Got it. So deeper as opposed to wider. Exactly. And, and so as, as I'm hearing you talk about this, um, I've got a background in synthetic biology. I'm thinking back to like genetic engineering, right? Where you have like your genetic parts and you're trying to put them together to do certain, certain things. I mean, completely optimized to do a specific task. Do you envision a world in, in antibodies getting to that level where you're assembling parts uh, and pushing those out? Yeah, I mean, uh, from, from a broad perspective right now, we're already kind of doing that. There's a lot of these fusion proteins now, antibody as, as the binding domain on one end, and then your, your payload on the other end. Um, you know, cars, great example of that, um, to, to be able to do that. I think kind of the next step there, um, and, and maybe this is getting a little bit off topic, but um, the the, one of the most exciting things that, that I think will be coming down the pipeline is this ability to fine tune your regulation uh, and expression of your particular gene of interest. So in this case, an antibody. So if you, if you imagine, you know, we've, we've got this established now that we can deliver the drug via mRNA or viral vectors. So now what if we can deliver those stably and tune exactly when or when we do not want them to express their particular gene of interest? So if you have an, an antibody and we can pair that, like you're saying, synthetically with these different regulatory constructs, now we're able to, to really define um, how and when and with how much um, sure. this drug is expressed within the body for the life of uh, an individual. So a kill switch, essentially. <laughs> yep, kill, kill switch, and even beyond that, regulatory switch. Not even right. just a kill switch. Right, and and just going back to your earlier comment, uh, by CAR, you're referring to CAR T, the the chimeric antigen receptors. Exactly. Yes. Yep. And so, kind of looking at the antibody market, right? Uh, you you mentioned earlier that we kind of hit the the low hanging fruit, like the easy antibodies have been discovered and produced, perhaps. Um, do you see the antibody world kind of moving more towards the personalized where it's, you know, individual antibodies for a specific person, or do you see it just us going deeper and deeper and try to find like the, the more difficult ones that are more broadly ap applicable, right? Like those two, two approaches, right? Uh, where do you see the market going? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And, and it could be fractionated depending on the disease and the modality, right? So we, we already see a lot of that personalized medicine in, like you said, 
chimeric antigen receptor CAR T cells. Um, so that that is in and of itself a, a personalized medicine in a lot of uh, aspects. But combining that with, like you said, that broad-based, okay, on one end, you, you found an antibody that you're universally going to then implant in these personalized cells. So it could be a, a combination of the two. Um, personally, where I'd like to see it go, again, kind of relates to the, the whole synthetic biology question and regulatory or, or kill switches. And that would be to, yes, find the best candidate that would be universally applicable to any individual, but then be able to regulate it at a personal level. So again, kind of a little bit of both, um, but um, maybe taking the best of both worlds, if you will. Yeah. So kind of going for personalized dosing. Yeah. It sounds great. <laughs> it's, it sounds great. It's hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. Uh, I bet. Well, hopefully the technology keeps up right. And, and keeps pace, let not being the rate limiting factor, right. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it sounds like at the moment it might be trading data that that's slowing things down or impeding the pro process. Um, to me, that sounds like an easy problem to fix. Uh, you know, there, there are much bigger challenges you know, non-informatic challenges that I, that I think should be at the forefront. Yeah, ab absolutely. And again, um, you know, one, one thing that we've seen developed are some of these databases of, of antibodies and, and kind of to that point, you know, there's, there's a COVID antibody database out there. So people are sharing this information. They're providing not just the sequence of these antibodies, but the functional data that's associated with it. So and so that's a characterized data, right? That's a, that's a gold mine of a training set right there. Right. Um, you've got these thousands of antibodies that not just give you the sequence, but they tell you if they're blocking, they tell you what protein they're exactly interacting with. Um, and, and so it's, it's very cool data sets to be able to play with. And hopefully we can do that for more and more targets. And I think if these public publicly available data sets and data sharing, or if, you know, individual companies are able to develop these, these particular data sets, that's what we need for that training data set is to do the same type of thing with a lot of targets, a lot of different target classes. Again, a viral protein is, is just one such class. Then we've got these really complex cell surface proteins that are multi-pass transmembrane proteins, and, and those pose completely different problems. And then you've got different versions of them. You know, you've got ion channels, you've got GPCRs, you've got, and they all function differently and fold differently and interact differently once they bind their, their particular uh, target uh, endogenously. And so once we get a large enough set with each of these different target classes, again, within that same vein and that same model of having a large number of antibodies that we have all this characterization data for, that's the input we want. Thank you for listening to BioVideo. I'd like to thank Colby for being our guest today, talking about next generation antibody discovery. I'd also like to thank the listeners. To join the conversation, visit our blog, biorad.io, and don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This podcast is an original creation of Biorad Laboratories. Biorad is a trademark of Biorad Laboratories Incorporated in certain jurisdictions. All trademarks mentioned herein are the property of their respective owner.